You know, as uh, Zach was praying, I think one of the, the hardest and easiest things to do in life is to be yourself. <laughs> like, I don't know if there's anything more difficult in life than, like, just to be yourself. And um, at the same time, that's the easiest thing to do. You can let go of the things that you try to, at least that I try to do to make myself look what I consider to be better than what I actually am. So we're going to be in Psalm 25 today. So we're picking up after Psalm 24 yesterday. That's Psalm 26. Which one am I in today? Let's see. I think it's 25. I wrote this. So I had to do two slides over the last two weeks, but we're going to be in Psalm 25. So ignore what 26 says and look at, verse, at chapter 25. And uh, we're going to read the first few verses together, and then I'm going to... Um, I'm going to pick up and finish after that. I'm going to make sure I didn't just write the wrong one down. We did 24 last. Yeah, I know we're in 25. I know we're in 25. We're good. I'm like, did I prepare the wrong sermon this week? <laughs> so this is, this is Psalm 25. And as we get into this, yeah, you can join the tech team too. That's something you can do as well. Um, and you keep helping our church keep stay clean. We're going to go through all the, all the slides here. We'll, ju- we'll jump back to it in a minute. So with this particular psalm, this is one of nine psalms that is an alphabetic acrostic. So he goes through and he uses the Hebrew alphabet for each of the main lines within these 22 verses in Psalm 25. And there, it's kind of got some odd things about it because there are a, a couple of um, anomalies in there. Like he doesn't use the, the, the letter for kof. And he uses this letter resh, which is later in the alphabet, two times. So there's some weird things about it. But overall, it's this way of helping to memorize, because Hebrew scripture was, was heard more than it was probably read. So as you're hearing it, it would have been a, a tool by which you could memorize it. So I, I just point that out before we get into it, because you don't notice it in English. And it's just one of those little things that's, that's helpful, I think, to know as we're trying to understand scripture in its own context. So we're going to read Psalm 25, beginning in verse 1, or we're going to be frozen. And I'm going to, we're frozen? Got the wrong, okay, so, okay, good. Woo! I was, um, I'm relieved by that, actually. So I'm going to read, I'm going to invite you to stand. If you have a Bible, we're going to read just the first three verses, and, and we do this together, the first three verses to remind us that this is a collective hearing of God's word. Um, and then I read a little bit faster the rest of the verses. So after we get through verse three, um, I will begin to read a little bit quicker, okay? So this is Psalm 25, God's word to us. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in the truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs, instructs sinners in the way. 
He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider, see my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider, see how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Fathers, we hear this, this poem, this, this song that was penned so long ago by your servant and has been rehearsed and read and reread probably millions of times. Lord, we ask that it would come fresh upon us that your spirit would take it and open up our, the, the, the eyes of our heart, open up our minds to be able to receive what it is that you have to say right here, right now, to us in this particular time and space, and use it to point us to Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So, how do you grow in relationships? Like, that's a loaded question, I know. There's lots of different answers to that. But I'll just throw it out if anybody wants to say anything. When you think about how to grow in a relationship, what comes to your mind? Time? What? Time? Oh, wow. Y'all planned that beforehand. Good job. Great minds, right? What'd you say? Oh, think alike. Yes, great minds think alike. Think alike. I thought that was kind of a given. I thought you knew when I said great minds, you filled in the blank with that one. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Great minds think alike. Other things that come to your mind when you think about what it is that's needed to grow relationship? Becoming less selfish. Trust. Okay. Wow, and that is not a plant. We're going to end right there. So when we look at this, I think, I think vulnerability and trust, these are two things that are absolutely necessary if you're going to grow in a relationship. And just think about relationships that you've had in the past. Oh, good, we're up there. Um, good relationship. We're going to get there in a minute, okay? So pay no attention to the man behind the screen here. Don't pay any attention to the screen itself. So vulnerability is absolutely necessary if you're going to grow in a relationship. And this psalm is, uh, with most of the psalms, it's an exercise in vulnerability. There's an exercise of vulnerability, of trust in God. And what is David vulnerably seeking and wanting and trusting God for? Well, 
You read through the psalm, and it's about relationship. He's trusting God for relationship, but he's also trusting God for rescue. And we could go through probably line by line and see those areas where he's looking for rescue. Rescue from wrong, rescue from untruth, rescue from shame, that's how he begins, rescue from sin, from guilt, from loneliness and affliction and poverty and heart trouble and his enemies. There's all kinds of things. And then he hits lots of personal things, but then he ends with reminding us that this plea is not just for himself, it's for a, a whole people group. It's for the nation of Israel. Because he says, God, oh God, redeem Israel from all their trouble. So he's thinking personally, but he's also thinking corporately, redeem. So out of all that can be drawn out of this, here's gonna be the highlight. Now we can jump to that. The highlight is good relationships come through vulnerability. And then specifically, as we're looking at this psalm, a right relationship, a redeemed relationship, a restored relationship with God comes through vulnerable trust in God. And this is a, this is a theme throughout the Psalms, but for whatever reason, this one really struck me as I've been meditating on this and saturating myself in it the last uh, week or so. So in this vulnerability, how is he... Um, being David, trusting God for this relationship and this rescue. Like, what is he trusting God for? And I want to hit five things that David, and you could break this up, this psalm up in lots of different ways. I want to look at five things because it involves a vulnerable, vulnerable trusting of God to keep us from shame, teach his path, remember his character, see with grace, and then pres preserve with integrity or uprightness. So this, we're just going to walk right through the passage. So I, keep your, I encourage you to keep your eyes on the text itself. So verses 1 through 3, uh, the psalm is kind of bookended with this idea of keep me from shame, O God. This is deeply vulnerable. The, the concern of fear and shame is a real concern that David is experiencing as he writes this. He is lifting up his soul, and this is a word we're going to see a lot, nephesh. We mentioned it last week because it was in the last psalm, and it's going to come up a lot, nephesh. This idea, literally, it means throat or your, your life essence. He lifts up his life essence, his, his soul, and, sa and, and is asking the Lord to keep him from shame and from letting the enemies exult over him, rejoice over him. Lord, please, please help Rescue me, keep me from shame. How much is that a concern and a fear of ours? How much are you concerned about being shamed? Being shamed before others, before yourself? Where do you go with this fear? Um, not for, fully sure what to do with this, but there seems to be, the way that David describes this, there's a place of legitimate shame and guilt. Because he says, those who are wantonly treacherous, those who have this unfaithfulness, there's an emptiness there that in some ways seems to be shameful according to what he says. There's, there's like a place of shame. So our plea with God is keep us from this and keep us from not just feeling ashamed and from others humiliating us, or worse, living the empty, harmful life for others. Keep us from this kind of shameful humiliation. As we wait for the Lord, as we live vulnerably, humbly before him, not exalting ourselves, 
not defending ourselves. As a matter of fact, we're going to go wrong, so it's repenting, it's acknowledging where we've gone wrong, so it's not defending ourselves. He will keep us from real and ultimate shame. That's David's plea, and that's what God says he will actually do. He invites us to trust him in this, even when it seems contrary to our present experience, because you may be feeling shame right now. You may be. Lift up your nephesh to the Lord. Lift up your soul to the Lord. He wants to deal with the shame. So then we move into verses 4 and 5. With that, David knows that he has not always walked before God in the way that he should walk before God. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Vulnerable trust in God is about needing and wanting to know his path. You can't really live vulnerably before him if you're not wanting to know his way and his path. This requires him teaching and leading us in his truth. And the word truth there is also faithfulness, leading us in his faithfulness. If he is salvation, if he's this rescue, if he's the safety, we need to learn his way from him. We need for him to teach us his way. This looks like being teachable. You don't learn his way if you're not learnable, if you're not teachable, which requires vulnerability. It requires humility. One of our, I should say, one of my biggest problems is not wanting my way and my paths and my views, my societal views, my political views, whatever it may be. Um, I don't really want them challenged. I would rather you just fall in line with what I think, right? It doesn't work that way. God's ways are not our ways. He enters in to challenge us and to correct us. To know him and his rescue requires an ongoing learning, which requires him to ongoingly teach us. Then the big center section, six, verses 6 through 15, begins by asking God to remember Remember what? Well, remember, he says, remember your mercy, your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, your steadfast love. Remember me. Remember for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David's pleading for God to remember. All right, what do we want for God to remember? As you look through that whole section, what is it, what is it we're actually asking God to remember? Well, we're asking him to remember his character. Uh, who he is. Why? Because God is so very forgetful. I mean, what's the point of asking God, uh, does he forget who he is? I, I, don't think, I don't think that's the point. That's not, that's not the point. It's, it's part of how we relate to him, number one. Um, it's, how, it's how we do what we're doing right, right here, right? What are we doing? We're asking God in song and in reading. We're asking God to remember his character. It's also asking him to act according to his character. When we come before him, we're asking him to act according to who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. And this is our vulnerable trust. We are trusting him to be him. We are absolutely dependent upon him being consistently himself. And then it's really a reminder for who? Who really needs to be reminded of his character? Yeah, 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 I do, we do. 
for us. Yes, remembering the Lord, we want him to remember who he is, but maybe more, far more important is for us to remember. Asking him to remember is an act of us remembering. When we ask him to remember your character, what are we actually doing? We're remembering. We can't ask him to remember these aspects of who he is without ourselves remembering him. From there, David goes on to describe what he knows and what he remembers, what he's been taught, what he's been experiencing, what he's experienced about what the character of God is, who God is, which is what? Let's just, we'll start in verse eight and we're just gonna hit a few of these things. The Lord is good, tov, the word there is tov. He's good, he's purely good and upright. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice or in right judgment, meaning what does this mean about his character? Well, he's good, yeah, but what else? He's also a patient teacher. He's patient with sinners, specifically. He's patient with sinners. That's what we're seeing. His paths, verse 10, um, the, ways he, the ways he leads are always good. They're, they're loving, hesed. They're, they're purely loving kindness. That's the way, the way he is. He's faithful for those who walk with him. And then 11, for he forgives and he pardons great sin, great sin, not just the li- whatever you consider the little sin. According to David, he pardons great sin for his name's sake. Forgiveness is apparently, it's a part of his very essence. I mean, if, if we're asking him to forgive and we're asking according to his character, we're asking because he is a forgiving God. That's like part of his nature. Whoever fears lives vulnerably in a vulnerable awe before him. God will consistently instruct. He won't leave us out to flounder on our own. So if we are in this right, if we're, if we're vulnerable before him, he doesn't leave you out to flounder. He consistently instructs. Rather, God will make sure the person's soul, their life essence will abide in well-being, verse 13. They will live in good. Like he's good, if you abide with him, if you're vulnerable before him, you get to leave, live in his goodness. And then verse 15, 14, he is a counselor. He's a close friend to those who fear him, who live vulnerably with him. And then 15, and when, you're, when our feet get caught in a net, right? And this is an image of someone setting a trap for you, like physically if you're in war, but you can think about this metaphorically or in your own life. When people set a trap for you, you get your foot caught in a net or in trouble, then he is there to pull us out to keep us from being stuck. If you, if you feel stuck right now, he's there to actually get you unstuck. Now, he may get you unstuck in a way that you don't like, but if you live vulnerably with him, he will get you unstuck. In all of this, he's not just asking God to remember, he is, he is remembering. David is going through the exercise of remembering, setting his eyes on who God is, his character, and the actions that therefore come out of his character. That's what David's doing. He's setting his eyes on God, and he's asking God to act according to his character. A right, redemptive relationship with God comes through this kind of vulnerable trust, that God remembers his character and that we remember his character. How often do we rehearse this? So here's kind of the the response we can, we as individuals, but we as a community can struggle with. How are we doing with this? How much time are we spending remembering his character and asking him to remember it? And do we know it? I mean, that's a whole other question. What do we think about him? Who do we think him to be? What are we doing to learn his character more, to put ourselves in positions of being instructed by him? This is something for us to keep growing in. Then, 
Moving into this the fourth thing. David goes on, verse 16, turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider, consider, see my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sin. Consider, see how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. What's he wanting God to do here? The word consider is see. What is he asking God to do? He's asking God to see him. He wants to be seen, to turn and consider him. And to do this with grace, he says. He wants him to see the loneliness, the affliction, the poverty, the, the massive troubles of his heart, his stresses, his affliction and his, and his trouble. He wants him also to see, his, to see his sin, his ungood, but not counted against him. So he wants him to see the sin, but he doesn't want him to count it against him. Rather, he wants him to carry it away. The word forgive is carry away. Yeah, I kind of, kind of want you to see the sin. I just want you to get, but I want you to get rid of it. And then in verse 19, finally, he says, he asked God to see and to consider his enemies and the violent hatred that he's experiencing. He's asking God, see what's happening to me. Please don't turn a blind eye to what I'm experiencing. Living in right relationship with God involves being seen. It involves God considering you. This is where real vulnerability, I think, kicks in. When you share with someone your, think about this, you share with somebody your real pain, your real fear, not like the surface thing that everybody says, you share with them the personal pain, as well as your own darkness, sin, sharing that internal and the external stresses and how they are affecting you, when you share that, dude, that is vulnerability. And of course, God knows it, but this is more about us acknowledging it. He's inviting us to acknowledge this and to bring it to him, lifting our soul, our nephesh up to him. All right, uh, this is hard for me. This one is a hard one for me. I'm okay sharing certain sins with you. Really, I have no problem sharing certain sins with you. I even find some sense of self-righteousness, I think, by admitting certain sins. Um, but honestly, I would rather look and feel more stable and more self-confident than what David shares. I would much, like I want to frame my weaknesses and my, my fears in a way that doesn't make me look real bad. That's not vulnerability. And honestly, there's no life there. Uh, I, think I've, I think I've shared this with you guys. My, my wife and my kids for the last many years have told me that I'm stressed. <laughs> and I've always said, no, I'm not. Keep quiet. She's over here shaking her head. Um, no, it, it is true. And I've always said, I, fine, I'm, it's a big deal. I'm fine. And, um, and it's a lie. I don't think I have been fine. 
I think there's certain stresses that I have taken on, certain stresses internally and externally that I just want to uh, pretend like I'm okay. Because when I start to admit that, then it looks like I can't handle life. Because maybe, maybe it's because I can't handle life. I don't, I don't like acknowledging that. Um, I think there's even a piece where I feel like if I acknowledge the stress, I'm not trusting God, right? Oh, if you're so stressed, you obviously, what's your problem? If you're so stressed, you must not be trusting God, right? I mean, that's, that's how I, I, think it, I think it works out in my head. Reality is by, okay, I'm, I'm processing this, by not acknowledging my pain or my fear or certain aspects of sin, I'm living the opposite of trust, according to David. I'm certainly living the opposite of vulnerability. Why? I, I don't know. Why are you asking me these questions? <laughs> okay, this is, this is my process. Maybe I'm more afraid of being seen than I realize. I talk about it. Like, I talk about vulnerability, and I talk about wanting to be seen, but me talking about it and me preaching it is a whole lot easier than doing it. Maybe I don't really want to need grace. I don't think I want you, and maybe I don't want God to need to look on me with grace. I want to be worthy because I'm worthy. Maybe it's more difficult for me to lift up my soul, my life essence to God than I realize. So, how about you? I don't know. Consider it for yourself. What does it look like to relate to each other? What does it look like for us to relate to each other? What does it look like for us to relate to God like this? Asking God to turn and to see our pain and our fear and our sin with grace and mercy. What does it look like to actually ask him to be stripped naked and say, see me with grace because I need the grace. Trusting that he is not just looking down with judgment and an attitude of stop being a little baby, Joey, right? Because what, what's in my head? I don't know why I think that I had a wonderful father. He never treated me like that. But I think there's something in me that's like, if I get vulnerable, God might just say, come on, man, man up. Stop being such a little wuss, Right? I mean, that's the attitude that I can have toward others. So I assume that they have it towards me. So maybe I assume that God has it towards me. And I, theologically, I know that's not true, but there's something else in me that, that has this sense. Oh, what do we believe about his character? Are y'all okay with this? It's like, what the heck is he doing up there preaching? <laughs> yeah. Um, last section, starting in verse 20. It's not just seeing and knowing our pain or even just forgiving. David goes on and he concludes like this. Oh, oh guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So of course, we want to live with personal integrity and uprightness, don't we? I mean, we want to live this way. 
but we are, are we dependent on our own integrity to pres- preserve us? This is what gets me caught in that trap. I, I feel like I've got to have my own integrity to preserve me. Are we dependent upon that? Is that what David's saying? Part of my honest vulnerability is, I think, actually being free to admit before you and others and my family, which I don't have to admit that because they just know it, and before God, that my integrity and my uprightness has actually not preserved me. As a matter of fact, my lack of uprightness and my lack of integrity is what brings decay in my life, and it's what's bringing decay in the world. And the lack of integrity of others is what's brought decay to me as well. Right? So from, from where does my help come? How does God redeem us with integrity and uprightness? For us to practically grow in this, for, in, for us to grow in integrity, we, we first have to continually need to be, we continually need to be preserved by the integrity of another, the one on whom we wait. A, a redemptive relationship with God that comes through vulnerability finally trusts God to preserve. How? Like, the, I, th- I think this is really where David's moving. How does he most fully do this? Because David saw this in Yahweh, in, in the God of Israel. He saw this in the, in the one he believed made all things. But he was also knowingly or unknowingly pointing to God's greater redemption that was coming. There's something more that, that David, I think, in, intuitively, I think he just knew there was something more coming. What is that? Jesus is the climactic answer to this prayer. Right? We are people who follow Jesus. So somehow, how does this actually get us to Jesus? I would say Jesus is the climactic answer to this. In entering this world, Jesus lived with perfect integrity. I want to back back through these. Think about Jesus in light of these things, okay? Go backwards. He lived with perfect integrity. There's no shadow. There's no darkness about his life. He then invites us into relationship where he shares his integrity. He shares his uprightness with us. In a sense, he allows his uprightness to represent us. We talk about it covering us in a sense. Which over time, the more it covers us, the more we sit in it, the more we soak in it, the more it actually reforms us. And it tra- his integrity begins to actually seep into us and to reform us. He did this not from a distance, holding his nose at our stench and belittling our pain and, our, and judging us. He did it by turning to us, he, by seeing us, by seeing our pain and our sin, and then entering our condition. And doing it with grace, unlike I do, he does very differently. He sees and he enters with grace. And he did all of this, not just remembering God's character with us. Hey, remember, this is who God is. I mean, he does that. He's pointing to that. But he does it by being God's character. He's being God's character for us, showing in his own life the embodied character of God. What does it look like if God were one of us? This is what it looks like. Jesus is what it looks like, by which he, of course, taught us the way. He's definitely showed us the way. But what's the real essence of Jesus? He is the way. He is the way. Which leads us to how he ultimately keeps us from shame. 
the shame that could not only crush us before others, like shame can literally crush you. How many people have put a gun in their mouth because of shame? Shame will crush you. It can crush you before others, before yourself. But the shame and the guilt that could, that could also destroy you before God. What do you do with this? He didn't just say, hey, look, don't feel ashamed. I mean, Jesus didn't come on and say, not so bad. Don't feel, don't feel the shame. Or you really don't have anything to be ashamed of. I mean, those kind of words never came out of Jesus' mouth. Instead, he sees our shame, and rather than turning, he steps into it. He steps into the shame. Even more, he allowed us to physically and emotionally shame him to death. We shamed him to death. The shaming of his enemies cut him off, not just from his friends and his family, but from all the people that he loved, and ultimately, it cut him off from the land of the living. And as the one innocent one, the perfect good tove, the perfect goodness, he carried in his body on a tree all of the shame. He carries it. In his innocence, he was then vindicated because he was the innocent one that was shamed. He was vindicated. In his resurrection, he then returned from our shameful shaming of him to a new shame-free life. What is resurrection? It's a shame-free life. Though we may have deserved it, he gladly refuses to shame us. When he comes back, he could absolutely shame. I told you guys who I was. Nothing like that came out of his mouth. He refused to shame us for betraying him. Instead, he extended peace and he extends forgiveness and preservation. He extends full redemption and restoration. That's what he does when we shame him. The psalm is complete in Jesus. Restoration, redemption is accomplished in Jesus. In Jesus, a right relationship absolutely comes through vulnerability but not first through my vulnerability before him. It comes through his vulnerability before us. That is the gospel that transforms everything. Fathers, we're thinking about as we're hearing and we're reflecting on, we're remembering your character. Lord, we have so much more to see and to understand of the greatness of who you are and then as a result of who you are, how you actually live life, and how you have embodied yourself through your son to be our preservation, to, to be this one who keeps us from shame and who teaches us and who embodies the character, who sees us with grace. You're the perfectly righteous, right, and you've accomplished for us what we can't accomplish for ourselves. And we see ourselves in your light. There's, there's a reason to be, feel guilty and ashamed. And yet, you say you take it on yourself, you swallow it, and you come back to it, and you say there is no more shame. Lord, some of us here may be struggling with some deep issues of shame. Jesus, wash over us. Come and feed us.
Help us to live in the shame-free life. We ask in your name. Amen.